Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Mark McIver. Mark is the CEO, owner and founder of Slider Cuts, an award-winning barber in London. Mark, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hey there, thank you for having me on. Uh, Thanks ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air with us, Mark. Now, this podcast, of course, is all about the topic of leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the current COVID-19 situation and different business leaders having to feel their way through this crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within the services sector, such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks with everything shutting down? Because I can imagine it's been quite a challenge. Yes, it has been um, a difficult time, you know, for me, for everybody, for my staff, you know, for everybody in the country, to be honest. And um, I guess been trying to navigate through by just looking at everything I can do. So from when this crisis started, my mindset has just been, okay, especially in the position of being a leadership, you know, I own a shop, I have staff who I pay, I have people under me, I have a family. I've just said, you know what, I just need to focus on what, can I actually do in this situation to get the best outcome? And that's all I can actually do. So that's just been my focus. You know, it's been difficult, you know, because um, especially when I closed down my shop, because I closed down my shop before it was announced that, you know, you have we have to close down. And it was a difficult decision because there's people who are freelancers in my business. And I was like, oh, I'm affecting your livelihoods. And so... I've just been thinking, you know, what can I do for you? What can I, how can I help you? And through this time with my staff, I've been communicating with them. I've been sending them links to things they can do, you know, like being like, have you signed up for universal credit? This is the way you do it. Um, You know, there's these new schemes the government has put in, you know, make sure you look at them and just basically just keep in communication with people, just showing them all the things they can do. And that's important to aspects of leadership as well, isn't it? Good communication and leaders as well with the people around them looking up to them for answers at the moment have been under a great deal of pressure to provide that sort of reassurance. And it looks as if you've really sort of taken that on and uh, really taken it in your stride, Mark, for sure. Yes, yes, yeah, definitely. And um, if we think about those people who have maybe inspired you and your leadership style over the years, of course, I mean, your line of work, you've been exposed to quite a few um, celebrity names, for example. I understand that Anthony Joshua, for one example, is one of the clients that you've had. Um, Tiny Temper from, of course, the music world as well. Um, So you've been surrounded by some uh, very influential people. And I can imagine a few of them are there that you also look up to as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm like those people and a few others. And it's funny with the conversations I have with these guys and over the years looking at them, I've always looked at their business acumen. Mm. That's always been the thing I've always been so focused on. You know, obviously they're talented in their different fields, but it's always been about their business acumen and how they've um, taken the sport or the craft, what they do and sustained a business, you know, and had people they who work underneath them and they pay them and have big teams. And that's always been my focus. So over the years, I've learned so much from these different individuals and if you ask any of them even the other day to be honest i saw tiny temper in an interview and he said in the interview that one of the things he liked about me cutting his hair was the conversations we had he goes you know mark slider cuts was always so interested in the business side of things because he was we always had these conversations about business and he goes i really like that about him and 
it's true because I really was just trying to always work out how does the business function. You know, we know the hit songs, we know the knockout punches, but what is everything behind it that takes you to this place? And it's definitely helped me because opening up my own business and having staff, I've needed that, especially that I didn't go to business school mm. or anything like that. I've learned from individuals who I see being successful. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because as a country, um, I think there's this culture when we think about leadership to instantly think about the celebrity side of it, just being in the public eye, being obviously sports personalities, politicians. And there is a lack of recognition somewhat for the business side of things that goes behind that. And do you think, Mark, that we really recognise good business leadership maybe as much as we should do in the UK? Maybe I don't think so, to be honest, because it's never actually spoken about. And I don't think people, you know, growing up ever think to themselves, you know, I want to be a good business leader because it's just something that's never even brought, brought to their attention, you know. So I'm fortunate for some reason that I really um, have always been fascinated with that. I've always been fascinated with the way things work from a kid, you know. When I was a kid, I, you know, I used, I used to build bikes from scratch because I've always had this fascination with the way things get to the final result. You know, I've always known that, you know, the bike doesn't just appear like that. There's work that's gone into it to make it that way. You know, a hit single just doesn't come like that. You know, a knockout punch doesn't come like that. You know, the Prime Minister doesn't just become the Prime Minister. There's so much behind it. And I think that would you put it, we should recognise it more and talk about it more in society, in schools, in just the general public. So you think, Mark, um, especially that good leaders have to accumulate a lot of experience to learn how to become good leaders in their particular fields as opposed to just being born as good leaders? Yeah, I think you've got to um, pick up the skills. I don't think you just, I think you might have the potential to be a good leader, but it has to be nurtured always. Mm. You have to have people in front of you. You have to be looking at good leaders because a lot of times we reproduce who we are or we're products a lot of times of who the person above us was or the person above us, whether that's your parents or the people you look up to. So, and I've seen it in the community which I work in, you know, in all the schemes which I do, because I don't only just run a business, I do kind of like mentoring and I, you mm. know, bring young people from who are in difficult situations, you could say, or going down the wrong road. And I kind of bring them into the business and I pay them, I make them work, you know, and just give them something to do. And what I've noticed with the more troubled youngsters is, a lot of times they have good attributes. They just have the wrong influences. And that just so goes can, to show, yes, that some of the most influential leaders out there, as you're saying there, Mark, can actually be mentors, as you're, um, of course, talking about. Yeah, definitely. Massive, definitely. isn't it? I've got to say, uh, Mark, um, in terms of uh, the fact that you, of course, um, have accumulated a lot of business experience but didn't go to uh, to business school, um, as you say, I'm fascinated by what point in time would you say you knew at the penny dropped that you were going to sort of go into business yourself um, in the profession that you love? Well, I'm not sure at what point. I think when I, I'm 35 now, when I was 24, I remember having the mindset. I remember like the penny dropping that you could say, saying, do you know what? Barbering is the thing which I'm going to do. This is my career. This Because I've done various other things. You know, I've done like a foundation course for social work. I don't know. Um, I am a qualified personal trainer. Um, I was about to go into photography. So there's various things which I was interested in. And at 24, I decided, you know, barbering is going to be the thing which I'm going to do. But 
what I realized in my life from when I was younger, I've always been interested in business. And also I've been, I've been indirectly, you could say, or directly influenced by business things around me, which I didn't know growing up. As an example, my mom used to make, you might not know what this is, but I'm Nigerian and there's a food called chin chin and plantain chips. And my mom used to make them and sell them to shops. But she used to make her kids, me and my three brothers, she'd cook the food. They're like biscuits, they're like snacks. She'd cook them. And then we would have to put them on the weighing scales and be like, okay, you know, 60 grams, you know, put them into the bag, seal the bag, put the labels onto the bag and then, and then deliver them to the shops. So all of these little things. And also my mom ran a shop when I was like three years old. So obviously I don't um, remember anything business-wise, but I think all these little things kind of feed into your, your subconscious and kind of like nurture and train who you are and your mindset and the way you think of things. Also my granddad, who lived in Nigeria, used, used to have a factory where he used to make rubber and he used to um, export it from Nigeria even to England and sell it. So I heard all these little things growing up. So I think, you know, a lot of times, as I said earlier, you can, you're really kind of like partially a product of your environment mm. and the people around you and the people you look up to as well. So I didn't go to business school, but I feel like there's these little things which were happening throughout my life that were kind of like being implanted into me about business. And that's why I think I've always been so interested as, as a teenager. I remember doing um, events with my, my youth club I was in. And I remember kind of like being so into it and being like, this is how we're going to promote it. And we're going to go out there on the streets and tell people to come. And we're going to do it at this time. And I remember being really, really like obsessed with it, you could say. And I realized now I'm older and look back, wow, I was really interested in business the whole time. So there wasn't a point when this penny dropped where it's kind of like I'm a business person, but mm. slowly throughout time, it was almost like I was being watered. My business acumen was being watered. You can see exactly where you're coming from, Mark. And it goes to show as well that parents amongst others can be some of the more influential people out there um, as well, for sure. And it's very much a case of learning and development, isn't it? I think people can sometimes be born with a certain self-motivation and a certain drive to succeed. But even if you do have that, you've got to pick up acumen and you've got to pick up skills throughout your life. And the biggest teacher in that, as you've mentioned there, is just experience, isn't it? Meeting people, picking up new traits, going out and learning things. Yes, because before I even, when I was doing my business, funny enough, the one thing I left out was I was about to go and do a business course because around that age of 23, 24, I realized, you know what? I really enjoy business. So you could say that was a penny drop. Around 23, I said, I really enjoy business. And I was speaking to my auntie and uncle who live in America because I was on holiday there. And they were like, you know, you seem to really be into this and you should really like pursue it. And I didn't end up doing it because I realized I was already working in a field which I want to be in. And I was learning so much on the job through failing at things and learning. So I remember like having, managing a shop, a barber shop. Um, before I had um, Slider Cup, my own shop, um, I was managing another shop called DNLs in Holloway. Mm. And I remember things like, I was running it, sorry, I was managing it slash running it. And I remember these bin people came and said, you know, where have you been putting your bins? And I was like, oh, I put them outside. They're like, you know, have you paid for the bins? And I was like, what do you mean? We don't, we pay our, like our business rates and all these type of things there. You know, I don't get, you know, why would we pay for bin bags? Because I just thought as at home, you just put your bins out. They're like, no, we're going to fine you because you have to pay for bins. I'm like, wait, hold up. I didn't know that though. They're like, well, you know, you should know that. And I'm like, you're really going to fine me and I don't know. And there was a lot of these type of things which happened in running a business, which made me then learn. But I learned from experiences of 
you know, being fined for something I didn't know and then being like, okay, cool, this is what you're supposed to do. And now when I talk to other people about business, you know, I know all of these things from my failures. And now I'm saying to them, look, when you're setting up a business, make sure you've got all of these things in place. Make sure you've registered your business. Make sure, you know, you've got, you've got the bin company who take out your bins. Make sure you've got your insurances and all these types of things, which over the years I learned through not doing it, then something happening and then learning from it and then, you know, implementing it. Exactly. It's a constant learning and experience. And there's always going to be one or two little mistakes along the way and a couple of setbacks as well. And it's also about not being disheartened when they do happen as well, isn't it? And just being able to learn from those. Yeah, definitely. And um, of course, you've been hugely successful um, in business yourself, Mark. Of course, you've been recognised by the Black British Business Awards, for example, for your work. Um, Given all of that experience and that success that you've had, if you were to give some advice to somebody who were looking to make it within business, what advice would you give them? Off the top of my head, one of the pieces of advice I would give to someone who's trying to make it within business is study. Study. Study what made people successful. Don't just kind of look at the outcome. So if you look at any business that you like, whatever it is, that could be the biggest businesses in the world, you know, from the major, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, you know, whatever it is, to your local barbershop or your local sweet shop. If you see a business that's doing well, then study the process because that's what helped me so much, focusing on the process of how people got to there, all the things that have actually happened and the things they've gone through and the things they've had to do to get to there because that's the important part of the journey. A lot of people just look at the success and look at, you know, the number, as we said earlier, you know, the number ones and the knockout punches, but they don't look at the work that goes into making it there. So if you want to go into business, really study the process of successful people. It's talking. It's thinking about the long term, isn't it, Mark? The long term gain that you get from the process. That, of course, um, that comes from the work that you put in as well. Exactly as you say there. Um, if yeah. you think about the uh, the long term for slider cuts now, Mark. Before we do uh, wrap things up on the uh, the program today, do give me an idea of what you envision for the business in the next year or so. Not just in getting through the current COVID situation, but also what your ambitions are for beyond this pandemic as well. I think my ambitions would be that I'm going to obviously have as it's been anyway, a successful business, you know, flowing customers in and out. But I want to um, do a bit more outreach to young people, create more programs that can bring young people in to keep them occupied and teaching them. I'm already doing programs, but I want to do, like I've got like about three people on a program right now, but I want to kind of like somehow do something that will reach out to more people. Um, I'd also like to do a lot more masterclasses. I do masterclasses, but I want to grow that to um, do more masterclasses for people to teach them because my masterclasses entail from business to barbering. So I find it important that it's not good enough to teach someone the craft of how to do something. Like, you know, like it's not good enough to kick, teach someone how to kick a ball in sport. Also, you've got to teach them the business side of what you're going to do when you make money from kicking that ball as well. So that's what I really try and do. So I think I want to do that. And another major thing, which is kind of, you could say with the masterclasses, I want to open up an academy, which would be due to do with business and barbering. And I really want to do that. So for Slider Cup, I want to do a Slider Cup Academy. 
I've got to say, Mark, I think um, that's um, an absolutely incredible ambition because, as you say there, the younger generations are the future of business and it is them, especially those from disadvantaged, difficult backgrounds that do need to be nurtured, absolutely, because there's a bright future ahead for all of them. Um, Even though we're just about out of time on the programme today, Mark, I think it would be amazing if in the next few uh, months um, and over the next year, once we start to see these plans coming to fruition, we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us just to discuss how it's getting on and how Slider Cuts as a whole is doing too. Um, But for now, um, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to today's programme. It's been a real pleasure, but also a real insightful experience as well. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and looking forward to being back on in a few months. I look forward to it as well, Mark, and please do take care and do stay safe in the meantime as well. Thank you. That was Mark McIver, the CEO, owner and founder of Slider Cuts. Uh, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Andrew is the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a player, Strauss is only one of three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He is also the England Test captain with the high, the second highest amount of Test victories in history. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours, you know. And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was 
relatively old is probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was to just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change. 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.